a hand. That's fine. <laughs> um, thank you, Yuen uh, and Andre and David and Darren and Dave and Pamela and everyone who's been up here. Heath helping lead this morning. Appreciate you guys a ton. Um, I just want to add to that. Again, we welcome your feedback on this. It's part of our process of onboarding elders. Um, and just say that our current team of Andrea, Yuen, and Janine have been super, super encouraging to me, challenging to me. We've had some really great uh, conversations over the last year and a half in this sort of version of the team. And I'm really excited for, uh, for Justin to be able to step into that and experience that. Um, again, as someone who has elded before, he brings a lot of experience uh, and wisdom, but I think also this is going to be a good gift for him to elds sort of in the, in the Discovery 2.0 era as well. So I want to take a moment uh, and just sort of pray over that, and then um, if you have a Bible, you can meet me in Luke chapter 10. That's where we're going to be this morning. And uh, so I just, again, invite you to pray with me. Heavenly Father, we are grateful for uh, this community and to be in this together, this thing called church, this mission of helping people discover the good news of Jesus. God, would you continue to give us good leaders? Would you continue to give us wisdom and guidance as we move forward together? God, I pray for Justin specifically in this season of discernment and preparation. Um, that you would be with him, that you would soften his heart, that you would give him a sense of excitement, um, but also courage for what lies ahead. And again, I pray for our whole community that you would continue to teach us what it looks like to be good neighbors. This idea of neighboring is so critical to who you are and to your purpose, your mission for us uh, on your earth. And so would you uh, remove the barriers? Would you open us up to what it is you want to speak to us this morning, God? Would you encourage us and challenge us with this story, the Good Samaritan, a story that we may be familiar with, um, but would you make it fresh and new for us today? We pray all of this together in Jesus' name, amen. All right, Luke chapter 10, beginning in verse 25. You can read along in your Bibles or follow along on the phone or the words will be up here on the screen as well. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? This is the test. What must I do to inherit eternal life? We'll talk about what this means in a moment, this idea of eternal life and this question that he asks and why it's a test. What is written in the law, Jesus replied, how do you read it? Don't you love how Jesus answers, answers the question for him? What's written in the law, how do you read it? The expert answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this, and you will live. But the expert in the law was not done, right? He, he wanted more, so he 
asks a follow-up question. Wanting to justify himself, he asks Jesus, well then, who is my neighbor? Who's my neighbor? And Jesus, in, in reply, this time tells a story, right? Here's how the story goes. A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by, notice this phrase, on the other side. Right? It's not just like kept going. He like goes to the other side of the road to avoid him. So too a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But then a Samaritan, as he traveled, came to where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He took pity on him, and he went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine, put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, look after him. When I return, I'll reimburse you for any extra expense that you may have. Which of these three, which of these three, Jesus says, was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? And the expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy. The one who had mercy. And so Jesus tells him, go and do likewise. Go and do likewise. All right, how many of us have had to play, you tell two truths and a lie about yourself, and people have to guess which one is which, all right? So we're going to play two truths and a lie for just a moment. Um, I lived in, this is about me, okay? I have the microphone, so we'll play this game about me, all right? I lived in India as a kid. I think Temple makes the best coffee in Davis, and the Giants, I need to be specific here, the San Francisco baseball Giants are my favorite sports team. All right, what's the lie? Oh, man. Oh, you guys know me. Yes. Um, I lived in India as a kid. Here's a picture. You can tell which one is me because I'm wearing the red tank top. <laughs> That's how you know. Um, I love the San Francisco Giants. Uh, my son Cruz and I got to actually go on the field this summer, which was pretty awesome. And then Temple is good. Temple's fine, but Pachamama is is my spot. I think they make the best coffee in Davis. All right, two truths and a lie. Um, just a little bit of play. Three truths and two lies with the story of the Good Samaritan. Again, this is a famous story that Jesus tells. It's a story that has deep resonance inside but also outside the walls of the church, right? It's just kind of a story that people know even in our larger culture. Now, before we get to the three truths and a lie, let's pull back the camera for just a moment and frame the larger conversation. We're uh, in this conversation called Good Neighbors, and as UN said a few moments ago, it also is kind of our frame for the year. We'll do a lot of other things. We'll have other, to other topics of conversation, but sort of underneath all of that is this question of what does it look like for us individually and collectively as a church to be good neighbors here? in this place, this year. Our, our 
contention here is that sound biblical theological reflection starts with Jesus, moves to mission, and then imagines or reimagines the forms and structures of church. So our thing that we've been saying, right, over the last couple of weeks, Christology, that's what we believe about Jesus, leads to mission, which then leads to church. Jesus gives us a mission and then organizes us into church to accomplish that mission. Oftentimes, though, we begin, especially if we've been in church for a while, right, we begin with ecclesiology, right? We begin with the forms and functions of the church. Then maybe we get Jesus to sponsor our particular type of church. And then if we're really spiritual, we try to invite people and get people to come to our thing. All right? And that makes sense. We've said this again. It makes a lot of sense because the forms tend to be what we interface with, what we interact with. We may have had really good experiences with particular expressions of church. And that is all really good. But everything that we do as a church, as individuals, must be grounded in Jesus. It must be grounded in Jesus. Hebrews 1.3 says this, about Jesus, the Son, Jesus, is the radiance of God's glory. And check out this phrase, the exact representation of his being. The exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. Colossians 2 says it this way, for in Christ all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. The exact representation, the fullness, right? All the fullness of the deity. Jesus is God's greatest gift to us because he shows us what God is like. You want to know what God looks like? Look at Jesus. The exact representation of his being, the fullness of deity in human form, but also, but also, Jesus shows us what humanity is to be like. So the full picture of God, but also the full picture of humanity. This is the great mystery of Christ. Fully God, fully human. The Word became flesh. And made his dwelling among us. We've seen his glory. The glory of the one and only son. This earlier, but this neighborhood. All right, the gospel in a nutshell. The word became flesh and blood and moved into the neighborhood. Fully God. The exact representation. And fully human. And so again, our fall conversation, our theme for the year it is reflective of this starting point. What does it look like for us to be good neighbors? To follow Jesus into the neighborhood. And to be good news in the places that he has us. Whether that's on campus or on our particular street or cul-de-sac. In our classroom or in our place of work. On the softball fields or wherever you may be this fall winter and spring, what does it look like for you to be a good neighbor in that place? What does it look like for us to take Jesus' command seriously, to love God with everything that we've got, 
and to love our neighbors as ourselves. Now, one of the most beautiful pictures of good neighboring is this story. Again, this Good Samaritan story that resonates. Again, though, a story that, that maybe we have some familiarity with us. And so my hope is that exploring these, these truths and lies will be helpful for us and kind of make it fresh and new. So here we go. Let's talk about the lies first. Lie number one, good neighboring is for the spiritually elite. Good neighboring is for the spiritually elite. This usually comes in the form of, of statements like, man, I'm just like super busy or I'm too messy or I don't have it figured out. I'm not spiritual enough to do this. So let me just figure that out first and, and then I'll like go be a good neighbor. By the way, church leadership can reinforce this in, in many ways. Where we elevate certain people, we elevate people based on appearance instead of character. All sorts of ways in which that can be reinforced by leadership. But good neighboring, again, line number one, good neighboring for the spiritually elite. Jesus takes this opportunity, this interaction he has with an expert in the law to blow up this type of thinking. So let's watch how he does this, all right? Beginning with the opening interaction, verse 25, Jesus is questioned by this expert in the law. This is a person, a man, who would have been looked at by people in that, in that moment, that society, that culture, as that guy has it all together, right? If anybody here is, is spiritually elite, it is this expert in the law, right? This is the person who who's teaching the Sunday school classes, who's, who's reading all the books, who's quoting scripture, of course they know the answer to this question. And the question that he asks is really an interesting question. It's actually a common question that was asked of rabbis and teachers. And it's a question that I think we need to sort of scrub up a little bit with some, some of the baggage that we might have associated with it. What must I do to inherit eternal life? He is not asking, how do I get into heaven? Which is definitely how, if you've, if you've sort of grown up in the evangelical church, this is how we've been conditioned to hear that phrase, eternal life, right? Not exactly what the question is. The phrase in the Greek is zoe aeneas. Which literally means life age. It often gets translated into English as eternal life. But it's actually not a question about quantity of life. It is a question about quality of life. It's a question about a type of life, not about a duration of life. He's really asking, how do I live a good life? Like, what is your, Jesus, what's your definition of the good life? What does that look like? And again, this was a common question. It was sort of a vetting question. He wanted to see how is Jesus going to answer this question. We have these questions, right, in our, in our moments, right? Those little questions that you ask to kind of see, like, where are you going to fall on this? At that time, there were two sort of big schools of rabbinical thought. There was Hillel or Shammai. Part of what I think this expert in the law is getting at is, is which one is Jesus going to pick? Is he going to pick Hillel or Shammai? Is he going to go conservative or liberal? Is he going to go this side or that side? You know what I'm talking about, right? Which is why 
Jesus' response to say. In other words, I'm not going to let you just very simply type me into one of these two categories and then sort of write me off. Right, let's get into it a little bit. Let's talk about this. What do you say? How do you read it? And so in, in this version of the story, it's actually the expert in the law who says, love God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength, right? Deuteronomy 6. And love your neighbor as yourself, Leviticus 19. In Matthew and Mark, those are the direct words of Jesus. But here in Luke, it's actually the expert in the law. Isn't that interesting? Jesus, though, affirms the answer, right? Yeah, you're right. Love God, love people. That's zoe aeneas. That's an eternal kind of life. And you get the sense that the guy is like, okay, but, but, I want a little bit more. I want a little bit more. We're not done here yet. So he kind of keeps pressing Jesus on this. And it's interesting I mean, the text says he wants to justify himself, which is an interesting phrase. But then he presses on the neighbor part of this. I wonder if that's because he's an expert in the law. I wonder if that's because he thinks that he is doing pretty good at loving God with all of his heart, soul, mind, and strength. Again, on the surface, he probably was. Right? He knew the Bible. He probably, you know, went to the temple and did, did all the things, said all the prayers. It looked good. And then let's be real here for a minute. It can be a lot harder to love messy people than a loving God. God's awesome, right? He loves us, gives us grace, forgives us, with us all the time. All these wonderful attributes of God. People are mean and rude and passive aggressive and fill in the blank, right? It would be a lot harder to love people than to love God. But as we like to say around here, there are no divided lives in the kingdom of right relationships. And so to answer this question... Jesus, again, doesn't just say, well, you need to, like, knock on four doors and talk to two people and invite someone over for dinner. And, like, he tells a story. Right? He tells a story. And it's a story that brings up some really interesting, some really interesting things. Because the hero of the story is this unexpected character. If you know anything about... Um, some of the history that's going on here, you know Samaritans and Jews had a contentious relationship. Samaritans were considered to be sort of half-breeds. They worshipped in a different place. They didn't do religion the right way. And there's just, you know, a lot of kind of historical cultural baggage between the two of them. So for Jesus to elevate this particular character, who the expert in the law would have considered to be morally inferior in just about every way, is pretty controversial right out of the gate. And then, he doesn't just elevate the Samaritan, but he does it at the expense of two very religious characters, a priest and a Levite, two people the expert of the law would have very much identified with. Now, here's what's interesting. The priest and the Levite are actually doing the right thing, according to the religious customs and duties of the day. 
for them, can't be around or touch a dead body. These things would have made them unclean and then unfit to do their religious duties as priests and Levites. So they are actually doing the right thing by going to the, oh, there's a guy that needs help. I got to go to the other side of the road because they really need me at church. As a pastor, it's like, oh, that's convicting. They're actually doing the right thing. Religion can make people profoundly unloving. That's a hard statement, but it's true. Religion can make people profoundly unloving. And it's the Samaritan. No degrees or titles. Who just serves. It's the Samaritan who goes, and he doesn't just serve, right? He goes above and beyond. Puts this guy on his donkey, oil and wine, takes care of him, puts him up in a hotel, gives the guy money, says, if you need more, I'll pay you back when I come to check on him. Over the top. You do not need to have it all together. You do not need to have the right credentials. You do not need to have all the answers to be a good neighbor. Anyone can do this. Are you with me? Now, line number two, kind of in the other direction, is that it's up to me to do it all. Sometimes, I've seen this happen many times, especially like in a small group setting, when when we come to a story like this or this specific story, there's almost this immediate pressure you feel in the room of like, okay, We're going to get to application, and when we get to application, I need to share, like, the gnarliest thing to prove that, like, I am going to be a good Samaritan. And and it can, again, it can sort of create this, like, I've got to do stuff. I've got to serve more. I've got to give more. I've got to do all these things. I've got to start a nonprofit. I need to move to Africa, whatever it might be. The, The story, though, is not an invitation to go looking for the craziest thing that you can do. It's simply to meet the need that's right in front of you. Are you the kind of person that goes to the other side of the street, or are you the kind of person that says, what can I do? How can I help? This is the question we should be asking, not what's the craziest thing that I can do in response to this. Good neighboring is actually a beautiful picture of grace because in meeting the need right in front of us, we're we're saying Implicitly and explicitly, God, you've got the rest. I'm going to do the thing that I can do, and I'm going to trust that you will take care of the rest. The Samaritan is good, not because he helped every single traveler on this road to Jericho, but because he was a good neighbor to this person in need. So, two lies. Now let's talk about three truths. Truth number one is that God is sovereign. Now, there's a big idea, right? There's a big idea, and there's an idea that has some baggage attached to it, and I do hope at some point that we can kind of dig into this a little bit more uh, um, later on. But today, I just want to say this. Sovereignty does not mean causation. God doesn't decide what cereal you're going to eat for breakfast. He has not already picked the winner of the Super Bowl. He knows who's going to win. But it doesn't mean causation. It does mean 
it does mean that God has authority. The ultimate authority over his territory, which is all of creation. Sarah Bessie says it this way, sovereignty is redemption, not causation. Sovereignty is about God's mission of redemption and restoration. It is the good news that we can rest in the truth that God is already at work. That God is already at work. That, this should sound pretty familiar to some things we've already said this morning, right? He was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. That's what sovereignty is all about. That God was pleased to reconcile all things to himself through his son, Jesus. So good neighboring is not really about us. It is. There's this kind of weird mystery here, right? We participate. But we are participating in the work that God is already doing. We join God in the work that he is already doing in our neighborhood, in our schools, in our class, in our families, whatever it might be. Again, not to prove how awesome we are or how spiritual we are, but because it's what God is doing. And we want to be with him and in it with him. Truth number two, love of God and love of neighbor cannot be separated. The brilliant scholar and theologian Dallas Willard says it this way. To understand Jesus, we must realize that deep in, the, in our orientations of our spirit, we cannot have one posture towards God and a different one towards people. We are a whole being, heart, soul, mind, and strength. And our true character pervades everything we do. We cannot, for example, love God and hate people. He, if, you, if you've ever read Dallas Willard, it can be a project. Um, but it's so good. And, and he has a little phrase for this. He calls it the, the unity of spiritual orientation. Like, that's awesome. The unity of spiritual orientation. You cannot have one posture towards God and a different one towards people. Sin fragments. Sin fragments. It tears us apart. Right? It cuts. It separates. It takes what was whole and it kind of rips it and shreds it. And what Jesus does is Jesus reconciles. He, he picks up the pieces and he makes it whole again. I don't know, have you heard the phrase, uh, love someone to pieces? <clears throat> There's a great story, a pastor that I know, his, his wife said that to his daughter. And his daughter said back to them, I love you whole. <sighs> that's a kid that's in tune with some stuff right there, huh? That's what Jesus does, right? Sin tears apart. Jesus reconciles it back together. Now the lives that we've looked at here are, are reflective, I think, of that fragmentation. Right? When we elevate love of God over neighbor, we create the conditions for spiritual elitism. We, we create the conditions where a pastor 
goes to the other side of the road because I, I can't deal with that. I got to go to church. All right, we create the conditions where churches argue more about the style of worship on Sunday morning than about the needs in their community. When we elevate love of neighbor over God, we end up in this place of trying to do it all by ourselves. It's all up to me. I gotta, we got to do this and start this and eight programs and just workaholic. We are whole beings. Heart, soul, mind, and strength. We love God with everything we have and we love our neighbors as ourselves. The unity of spiritual orientation. Truth number three, good neighboring is a posture. Good neighboring is a posture. I think this one is particularly important for, for me, for uh, those of us in Davis, where it could be very easy to get into that achievement mindset. Good neighboring is a posture, not an achievement. It's not about uh, proving our spiritual credentials. Good neighboring is found in a humble and repentance posture, not despise. It is a God-given impulse, but again, sin fragments and warps and twists, and we end up in this place where we're like this expert in the law, seeking to justify ourselves. But we good neighbor, if you can turn that into a verb, we good neighbor not to prove our worth, but to be with God. In Luke 24, so this is later on in the story. In fact, this is after Jesus' death and resurrection. There are some disciples who are, uh, they actually don't know that Jesus has come back yet. They're processing all of this stuff that's just happened. And they actually hang out with Jesus for a little while. They don't know that it's him, though. But then the story ends with Jesus revealing himself to them. He actually reveals himself as he's breaking the bread. They have this sort of like, oh my goodness, it's him. And the phrase in that story that I love is as they're reflecting on this and processing together, they say, we're not our hearts burning within us. That whole time, like they look back and they go, oh, we, <laughs> yeah, that was Jesus. We're not our hearts burning within us. And I don't know if you ever have these moments where, where uh, I mean, we believe, right, that God is with us always. But there are these moments where our hearts are burning within us. Right, this sort of deeper sense or greater awareness of, of that reconciliation of all things. For me, one of the moments recently was at the 4th of July. So for those of you, if you don't know, Every 4th of July, we help host uh, part of the celebration. It's called the Family Fun Zone. And uh, we've been doing this for, for many years now. And this last year was probably my favorite one because of this moment that I'm about to tell you about. So I'm standing there in the middle of the, the fun zone. I was probably supposed to be doing something. I don't remember what it was. Um, but I'm, I'm standing there with my friend Greg. And Greg and I have been coaching softball together for the last year. And we're talking about whatever the Giants probably, um, and the upcoming tournament and, and um, just hanging out. It's kind of the first time he's sort of been in my, like, discovery pastor world. And we're there, and we're hanging out, and we're talking, and I look around, and I see, I see my son Cruz, and he's playing 
um, mini golf with his buddies from school. And um, with her coworker, Nina, who's there with her daughter, who came because Amy invited her to come do something fun on the 4th of July. She's a single parent. And I look across the field and I see my daughter, Marina. Selling snow cones. I'm crying about snow cones, guys. Um, selling snow cones with her softball team. And my heart is burning. Because this, this is it. Th- this is who we are. Right? This is who we are called to be. Good news. Moving into the neighborhood. Being in it with people, being in it with God. And, and I don't know where all of those, like just the, the beauty of that moment was to see all these different threads sort of come together and intersect in this one place. And I don't know where it's all going. I don't know what God is doing in Greg's heart or Nina's heart or those softball girls or those buddies of Cruz. But we're in it. We're doing our best to be good news in those places. And I look around and I see you. I see you guys rolling up your sleeve, good neighboring in that place and in so many other places. I mean, we just had a team this morning out passing out donuts and coffee uh, to people downtown. I, I see you guys doing it. My heart is burning. This is who we are. This is why we're here. To love God with all we've got and to love our neighbors as ourselves. God is a servant. And we are most like God when we serve. And so as we come to the table and sing these last couple of songs, one, one final picture. This is Jesus. And this is Jesus at the Last Supper. The night as he's about to be betrayed and go to the cross, look at what he does. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power, sovereignty. And that he had come from God and was returning to God. And so he got up from the meal and took off his outer clothing and wrapped a towel around his waist. Loving God and loving his people, right? Unity of spiritual orientation. And after that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet. Posture of a servant drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. This is who we are. Right? And this is what we are called to do. To love God with everything we've got. And to love our neighbors as ourselves. I'm going to pray. The worship team is going to come back. We have some folks on either side of the theater. If you want to pray with someone this morning, we are available. would love to... Uh, to pray with you. And then during this time, whenever you're ready, you can come to the table and take the elements, the cup representing Jesus' blood shed for us, the cracker representing his body broken for us, Jesus reconciling all things. Whenever you're ready, you can come and take this. There will be a couple of questions up on the screen, too, for reflection as we move through this together. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you that you serve. 
that you serve us first. That you have initiated this process of redemption through your son Jesus. So that we could be put back together. So that we can enjoy right relationship with you and with each other. So that we can love you with everything we have and love our neighbors as ourselves. God, thank you for this invitation to be with you and to work with you in the reconciliation of all things. This morning, I would just ask that we consider if maybe we get pulled in one direction or another. And to elevating love of God over neighbor or elevating love of neighbor over you, God, but that you would help us to hold that together so that we have a full call this to be. God, would you continue to teach us what it means to be good neighbors. We pray all this this morning in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen.